Welcome. You're listening to Women's Health and Beyond with Dr. David Goslin, the only podcast for women providing a physician's point of view on everything relating to women's health, sexual medicine, and cosmetic gynecology. Get ready to discover the latest and hottest topics in women's health and how they relate to you. Everyone, I'm super excited about today's show. I'm excited because, as I told you, I want to give you my point of view on what I see in my practice on a daily basis. And something I get asked about all the time is, should I or should I not freeze my eggs? Am I too young? Am I too old? What's the window? So I've decided to bring on an infertility specialist that we're going to call in very shortly. But before we do, I want to give you guys a little sense of the history behind IVF and actually how short-lived it is. In 1978, out of Manchester, England, two pioneers, Dr. Sir Roberts Edwards and Dr. Steptoe, did the very first IVF. Her name was Lewis Joy Brown, and she was born in 1978, and I've actually had the pleasure of meeting her, and so has the guest that's going to come on. A short while after that, in April of 1984, the very first frozen embryo baby was born. She weighed five and a half pounds, and her name is Zoe. I was beginning high school at that time. So it's crazy to think about how far this technology has come. Today, infertility not only encompasses infertility, but looks at genetics. They're able to do pre-implantation genetic testing, which is huge. We're able to pick the sex of the baby, but more importantly is the genetics that is behind. We can actually do pre-implantation genetic testing for those who are carriers for certain diseases or test positive for certain tumor markers such as BRCA gene. And so not only has the technology just exploded, but we're going to see a revolution in tech fertility, which I'm going to ask him about because that is something that is beyond interesting. And they're actually saying by 2022, which is what, a year and a half away from now, we're going to see this as a $400 billion share market value. That's huge. Anyways, enough of that. We're going to go ahead and connect with Dr. Vikan Sapelian. Dr. Vikan Sapelian has been a friend of mine almost my entire professional career. We actually studied for our oral and written boards. Um, I'm a general OBGYN, but he's double board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So a little bit smarter than me. However, all that said, I brought him on because, as I was mentioning to the audience, Dr. Sapelian, I'm very interested with the process of freezing eggs because this is something I get asked all the time in my practice. And I just wanted to get some clarity for myself, for the audience, and for everyone out there who's listening. I know just, and then I know myself that in 2015, we saw more than 6,200 frozen embryo births. Is that correct? Or, or is this just frozen embryos? Um, in 2015, I mean, I'm sure there were tens of thousands of frozen embryo births. Um, I mean, frozen embryo transfer these days has become the norm. Uh, during conventional IVF, we typically, in most cases, we end up freezing the embryos um, 
to transfer them in a subsequent month just because we've learned that the outcomes are uh, slightly better. And in addition to that, um, it's healthier for the mother. So, but I mean, embryo freezing is one option of fertility preservation um, and egg freezing is another, both of which are very viable options for a woman or a couple to preserve their fertility um, and ex extend their ability to have, you know, healthy children down the line if they're not ready to have them currently. So Dr. Sapelian, let me ask you, who's a candidate for this? I mean, if I, I have patients who are 25 who ask me about it, but then I have patients who are 42 and ask me about it. So in your eyes, if you could just maybe describe to the audience who the perfect candidate for this kind of procedure is, that would be great. Very good question. So um, just to give a little bit of history, um, you know, for the, for the longest time, you know, egg freezing as a theory was there, but clinically was not available. In fact, the first uh, successful live birth from a frozen egg was in 1986, but its efficacy was very low. Like the, you needed a whole lot of frozen eggs to result in, you know, even one surviving. So practically it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something available for us. So then it wasn't publicly mass available. That's right. So in, in, in 1999, a new technique called vitrification was applied to, to this. And then, um, you know, to egg freezing. And ultimately, that uh, increased the, the efficiency of how many eggs actually survived the freeze-thaw process. And it wasn't till, um, you know, uh, it wasn't till... Uh, 2013, that um, the uh, American Society for Reproductive Medicine removed the experimental designation from egg freezing. So since 2013 now, egg, egg freezing is no longer considered experimental in the United States, even though in other countries like uh, in Israel and parts of Europe, they were freezing and thawing eggs uh, electively for a long time. But in the U.S., we've been doing it since 2013. Now, as you know, um, you know, we have been doing it in my practice uh, for before that under experimental, um, some under experimental protocols. But to come back to the question of who's a candidate for this, well, you know, there's a few situations in which a woman may consider egg freezing. Uh, the most common one is elective for uh, extending one's fertility. As we all know that as we age, and that applies both for men and women, uh, the fertility potential for all of us declines. It's, uh, it's an absolute thing for women because women are born with a finite number of eggs and no new eggs are made after birth. And that number of eggs begins to decline um, through the years, even before puberty. Even before puberty, uh, uh, a girl is losing eggs, even though she's not menstruating and ovulating. Now, right around the age of 34, 35, 36, that rate of decline 
really accelerates for whatever reason that we don't understand um, that, you know, loss of eggs picks up somewhere in the mid 30s. So um, when we say who is a candidate and who should uh, freeze their eggs, well, the best time to freeze eggs are from the mid to late 20s. Those are when the eggs are sort of at their uh, peak potential, peak reproductive potential. Unfortunately, most women in those years are not thinking about um, poten uh, potentially freezing their eggs or that they may run into a situation where they may run out of eggs 10 years or, or 15, 20 years later. Um, it is. This is a message that you know. Uh, as uh, practitioners who who care for women, we really have to get that message across, especially in fields where um, that individual or that woman it may not be practical for her to uh, have a child. So essentially, um, this is something that it, it's really incumbent on us to educate in, in colleges, in, in law schools, in graduate schools, in medical schools. I think of how many of our colleagues, our female colleagues, who pursued fields in medicine and then the residency and then a fellowship. And, and before, you know, right when all the training is done, you blink and already we're in our mid to late 30s. Well, you know, um, the you know at, at that age, the best eggs have already been uh, ovulated. So, Doctor Sapelian, let me ask you a question. I mean, mm -hmm. the truth is, this technology is pretty recent. So, I think we're still lagging behind. As myself, being an OBGYN, um, I'm governed by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which sort of dictates the protocols, they really haven't made a strong opinion on whether or not I should be having this conversation with my mid-20 to late 20-year-old patients. Now, you're absolutely right. Education is the key to everything. And I think that as physicians, we need to step it up and bring awareness to this because the awareness as far as mid-20s to, to early 30s is very low. I think the reaction that I see from patients desiring egg freezing is out of fear. Um, and we need to take that reaction from fear to knowledge and giving them the tools to do something about it much earlier than they are. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, knowledge is power. And, it's, and, it, it, and this is the absolute form of uh, primary prevention against, um, against potential, you know, infertility. Um, now, you did make a comment of saying you do get patients who ask you about egg freezing in their 20s, and you also get patients who ask you about egg freezing who are in their 40s. Now, um, there's no absolute cutoff, obviously. It's just that as um, the, you know, as a woman ages, that those eggs that have been there from birth as a cell, an egg is a cell, just like any other cell in the body. But if that egg is 42 years old, well, it's not going to function as an egg that would be 25 years old. So the success rate is different. Success rate is far less. Um, it would take far more eggs to um, to give us, um, a, you know, a realistic chance of having a healthy pregnancy. I'll give you some statistics just to kind of uh, make this clear. Oh, joy. And, 
Yeah. So, so if for for a woman who is less than thirty five years old, if we <clears throat> if we froze twenty mature eggs, and from that twenty mature eggs, there's a ninety percent probability that that woman will have a healthy pregnancy if she is less than thirty five years old, right? So, if we take that up to forty years old. If we had 20 uh, mature eggs in a woman who is 40 years old, from those 20 mature eggs, she only has a 51% chance of having a healthy pregnancy. You see, so the uh, the probability from 35 to 40 in just five years for the same number of mature eggs drops by approximately 40%. So if a, if a woman comes in at 42 years of age, let's say, and she says, hey, doc, I would want, you know, I would want however many eggs frozen to assure me a 90% chance that I will have a healthy pregnancy. Well, we would have to freeze 100 mature eggs. And to get 100 mature eggs may require, you know, 10 uh, uh, IVF cycles, 10 cycles where we harvest eggs. Um, and which is, you know, not practical and, um, and, and expensive. Uh, yeah, and, and, and could get very, very expensive. Let me ask you a question, Dr. Sapelian. So let's say the 35-year-old patient or the 40-year-old patient comes to me and says, Dr. Goslin, I'm curious about egg freezing, but look, finances are an issue, and I want to make sure that I'm a good candidate before visiting Dr. Sapelian. What can I do as a generalist to maybe test for some of these uh, barometers in order to see that or give her an idea of what her chances are and kind of help us decide whether she wants to go down that path or not? That's an excellent question. And this is something that I think uh, our OBGYN community should be screening for routinely, just like we screen for cervical cancer, we we, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, our patients are up to date on their vaccines and their, you know, family planning um, needs are met and contraceptive need needs are met. Same thing with their fertility needs. Now, um, and this discussion should be had with everybody who, who comes in for a routine uh, annual exam. When do you plan on having children? How many children do you uh, plan on having? And um, are you in a relationship or when do you when is this going to happen? And there are some basic screening tests that can be done um, to uh, give us an idea of where that woman is, because not every 30 year old woman is going to have the same ovarian reserve. There's a whole range of. Uh, you know, reproductive potential for any given age. So there are some uh, basic tests that can be done to determine where that woman is in, you know, in that spectrum of uh, their reproductive potential. And these tests we refer to as tests that are measuring ovarian reserve. What is in the savings account of uh, how many eggs we have in the ovaries? And there are a few blood tests, the most important of which is called uh, anti-mullerian hormone or AMH. Now, we like to check AMH because AMH is a blood test that can be done on any given day of the month. So 
that woman is there in your office for an annual exam, simply with the rest of the blood testing that you're going to do to check her thyroid, you can also add the test of anti-mullerian hormone. And then that could help, um, you know, that patient understand to see where they are. Now, uh, we typically look at those results and then we compare them to the median with the average of that woman's age group and helps us, uh, helps us better counsel that patient. Now, if a 30-year-old woman has an ovarian reserve in the 95 percentile, well, the way that we may approach her may be different than a woman who has an AMH that is in the low 5 percentile. Right, and that woman who falls with the, which says that her ovarian reserve is less than five percent of women in her age group. Well, we may counsel her to consider fertility preservation options more aggressively, or plan on, you know, beginning to start her family sooner uh, rather than later, just uh, because we found out that her ovarian reserve may be lower than. Uh, uh, the average person in that age group. Other tests that we can do, which we typically do in a fertility specialist's office, is an ultrasound where we look at the ovary and we do something that's called an antral follicle count. So antral follicles are these uh, are uh, the eggs that we see that are up on deck, so to speak, to be the ones who are going to be ovulating this month or next month or in the coming few months. And by counting the number of antral follicles, we're able to tell whether that person has a favorable ovarian reserve or an unfavorable ovarian reserve. And we can uh, we can take this in conjunction with the AMH levels, uh, which will help us counsel that that woman. So thank you for all that, Dr. Spin. That's a lot of information in one shot. So I've done the test. I think that she's a pretty good candidate for egg freezing. I, in theory, send her to you. What's the process like? So what happens? You guys decide that egg freezing is something that's going to be uh, a positive outcome or a favorable outcome for the patient. Walk me through the process of what happens. What does she need to do to prepare Excellent question. So, you know, once we see a patient, first we want to assess to make sure that, you know, they're a good candidate and that we can uh, perform the process and the protocol safely, that there isn't any issues or conditions that would contraindicate us or could or could potentially put that woman's health in harm. So uh, that's the first thing we try to assess. We also, just like you said, we want to make sure that that person is a good candidate for egg freezing, that the eggs, uh, there's enough eggs to freeze, that they're, that she is not too old for the process, and also that their expectations are met. We want to know when do they plan on having children, how many children ideally do they plan on having, do they have a partner? That's a very important one because if they do have a partner and they are planning to procreate with their partner, well, you know, that opens up the option of not just freezing eggs, but also fertilizing some of the eggs and freezing embryos, which is far more effective. But that is a different topic we'll get into on a different day. So once the patient comes in, we do a detailed uh, history to make sure that she's a good candidate and then she doesn't have any conditions that would contraindicate her going through the process. Then the, um, uh, 
process entails uh, stimulating the ovaries so that you know the ovaries will give us as many eggs as possible that month. So everything starts with the menses. In the beginning part of the cycle, um, once the woman gets her period, we ask her to come in on the first and second day. We do a basic ultrasound uh, to take a look at the ovaries, make sure that there aren't any cysts or anything that would um, uh, prevent us from being able to stimulate the ovaries. And once it's deemed that the ovaries are ready to go, then from the second or third day of the period, we start the stimulation medications. These are um, small injections that are taken for about 10 days. And the purpose of them are to uh, have the ovaries make as many eggs that month as possible. Now, these are eggs that um, that are up on deck, so to speak, and the, that are going to be lost that month. If we don't harvest them, those eggs are going to be lost that month anyway. So it's not something like we're tapping into the future reserve and we're taking eggs. That's that a good been, point. Yeah. So these are eggs that, you know, whether we take them this month or not, they're going to be lost this month. So then the stimulation process takes approximately 10 days. That, which includes daily injections. And we monitor that patient every three to four days during the stimulation by doing a pelvic ultrasound and a blood test to make sure that they're making uh, uh, good enough eggs, that the eggs are growing well. If there's any adjustments to the uh, medication dosage, we will make them as needed. And once the eggs are deemed to be ready, which takes about 10 to 12 days, then we go in and harvest the eggs. Now, the procedure to harvest the eggs is an outpatient procedure that's done under sedation. It takes about 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how many eggs that woman has. And, um, you know, it's done in an outpatient uh, uh, surgical facility. The uh, patient arrives. Uh, she's greeted by the staff, an anesthesiologist who's a doctor that specializes in uh, keeping patients safe and comfortable doing surgical procedures. We'll place an IV. We'll give some medications through the IV to make the patient completely comfortable um, and sedated so that she won't feel anything. And then under ultrasound guidance, the fertility specialist will... Um, retrieve the eggs. And once the eggs are out, the sedative medication is reversed. The patient will wake up, will recover for about an hour. And once she's fully awake, she's able to walk, she's able to eat, drink, and go to the bathroom, then she is sent home. Most patients will take a day or two to recover. And by the second, third day, they're completely back to normal and they go about their uh, normal life. Now, the day of the procedure, when the eggs come out, the eggs are frozen that same day, and they are they are stored in the egg bank. And, um, you know, those frozen eggs can remain, you know, frozen, uh, theoretically, indefinitely until that patient is ready to come back and use those eggs. So it sounds like a pretty quick process after all. I'm, explain um, to me, you you're know, talking about almost a full menstrual cycle period. And you really could be it, done and have your eggs frozen. It's it it takes about you know on on the average two to three weeks um, from from the beginning of menses. We typically the patients when they first come in it can be any day of the month um, for their initial consultation. 
And then with their subsequent menses, we can uh, get the process started. Um, and typically it takes two to three weeks for them to be done completely. So let me ask you a question. I have two questions, Dr. Sapelian. Number one, and just quickly give me maybe the most common possible complications of egg retrieval. And second is something probably a lot of my patients and viewers are very interested in is what is the cost of this overall about nationally? And too bad insurances won't cover at least one cycle since it seems like it's becoming so prevalent and important to our society since we're so busy getting educated and starting jobs. So if you can just give me a little bit of the the complications you counsel in regards to these procedures and then maybe just the cost. Yeah, so in terms of complications, the um, anytime we do a procedure, surgical procedure using anesthesia, there may be some risks attributable to the sedative medications. Um, in this era of you know healthcare, those and the the level of sedation that we use for this procedure, uh, it's highly unlikely. It's it's a um, uh, so uh, we don't experience that uh, too often. Um, in regards to the procedure itself, we, um, you know, there can be uh, anytime we do surgery in the pelvis, there could be the risk of uh, some internal bleeding, um, uh, some infections, um, you know, damage to some surrounding organs. But again, the risk of those are, are very, very low. Um, we do use prophylactic antibiotics that really essentially diminishes the risk of uh, infection and the risk of having any type of um, bleeding is somewhere in the range of, you know, less than one in a thousand. I mean, I could say in, in, in more than 15 years of doing egg retrievals, knock on wood, you know, we haven't had a single case of any of these complications, but nevertheless, the potential is there and we prepare, you know, we counsel the patients accordingly and we prepare for for the worst, but we're very, very careful and diligent in making sure that we, you know, we have the best possible positive outcome. So overall, yeah. a very minimally invasive procedure. That's right. That's right. Now, also, you know, having said that, it's it's very important to um, you know, I mean, this is something that requires um, a lot of expertise just because, you know, it is the, the pelvis is very rich with big blood vessels. That's where the aorta or major artery that, that is in the body bifurcates um, into smaller vessels. So there is a it is a high traffic area in the body. But nevertheless, with the proper attention to detail, uh, and, uh, you know, using the most sophisticated ultrasound guidance, um, we're able to make sure that we do these procedures very, very safely. Now, um, in regards to cost, you know, most uh, egg freezing around the country costs somewhere between eight to 15,000, depending on where you are in the country and how much medications are used. Um, in our center, we typically, you know, we, we charge eight thousand dollars for the for the process, and it all depends on however much medication that person used, which could add another two to three, four, five thousand sometimes uh, to the protocol um, of the process. Now, and, and I just, should also. I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, I was just going to ask you, just for our viewers, I mean, that that is a lot of money. Are there typical payment plans that, that IVF centers offer? Are there maybe, uh, I don't um, know how to I, say, I, not scholarships, but, but uh, grants that are allowed? Yeah, there are um, there are some unique uh, circumstances under which there are grants that patients can apply for, and these are cases where egg freezing is done for a medical necessity. For example, you know, not too long ago, I had a 20-year-old patient, 20-year-old girl who came in who was diagnosed with cancer, and she was, you know, she was about to undergo um, chemotherapy and radiation. And the chemotherapeutic regimen was one that is very gonadotoxic. And most women who undergo that type of chemotherapy will end up um, damaging their eggs. And most of their eggs would be impacted by this and their future fertility impacted. So oftentimes in this case, our oncology colleagues um, will refer the patients to us to, so that we can take, you know, we can take a look and and freeze a batch or two of eggs, so that uh, before they start the uh, gonadotoxic chemotherapy, to preserve their fertility. Now, in these case, in these instances, there are some organizations that may help with. Um, you know, giving grants or uh, even some of the pharmaceutical companies sure. will dispense the medications free of charge or at a deep discount. Um, um, and in some cases, also insurances may uh, help offset some of those costs when it is uh, for fertility preservation in a cancer patient. So it's always uh, worth trying. Yes, definitely. However, for elective fertility uh, preservation, um, there are no programs where the, you know there are grants given. Now there are some um, some companies that may uh, give uh, those uh, payment plans where a the patient would have to apply just like any other sort of credit, so to speak, and uh, and accordingly. You know, they will set up some sort of a payment plan where that patient can pay, um, uh, uh, you know, gradually for their medical treatments. That's a thank you for all that information. Dr. Spielin, I just want to touch on a couple other points. One, can you distinguish and just really briefly tell us what the difference is between just egg freezing versus embryo freezing, what the success rate and then maybe even, and I was just thinking about this before, touch upon the legality of maybe embryo freezing and then all of a sudden the couple separate or divorce or whatever the situation is, what happens? So em embryo freezing is a great option to preserve fertility for a um, couple uh, or an individual who is willing to fertilize the eggs using you know, uh, sperm, either an anonymous donor sperm or the sperm of somebody they may know. Now, the reason why we say embryo freezing is a more efficient way of preserving fertility is because when we freeze an embryo, the embryo is already, you know, several hundred cells. 
Whereas the egg, when we freeze the egg, is one cell, one delicate, complex cell, and that's what an egg is. So if that one cell is somehow impacted during the freeze and thaw process, well, its ability to result in a, um, you know, in a healthy baby may be impacted. Um, so, but when we freeze an embryo, the embryo is a big hardy ball of cells of you know more than 200 cells so uh, so it's able to withstand the process of freezing and thawing much better than uh, one uh, one cell which is the egg yeah it makes sense now the additional benefit of uh, of uh, freezing embryos is that you know in the in the continuum of all the steps that need to take place and go right for this process to result in a healthy baby the embryo is much further along in the process it's almost there at the finish line you see whereas the egg is more towards the beginning of the line so there's lots of steps that still need to take place for there to be a healthy pregnancy. So essentially what ends up happening is that when we freeze embryos, then, um, you know, then we know that we have gotten the process much closer to the finish line than if we freeze the egg. In addition to that, when, uh, when we freeze embryos, we test that embryo to make sure that it's a healthy one, that the chromosomes are normal. Is that, that, that pre-implantation genetic testing? Exactly. Pre-implantation genetic testing where, um, and if that pre-implantation genetic testing result is normal, well, the chance of that embryo to result in a pregnancy is very, very high, more than 60, 70, in some cases, 80%. That's tremendous. Um, so, But not so for the eggs because the egg is frozen much, much closer to the start line. So there's still a lot of uh, unknown for that egg, uh, once it's fertilized, to go through before it can, uh, you know, it can result in a healthy pregnancy. And that's another uh, very important point that, you know, we counsel our patients who, who freeze their eggs. I mean, there are some circumstances where, you know, uh, a patient may freeze her eggs, and but none of those eggs may result in a pregnancy. None of those eggs may result in, may not even make it to, um, to healthy embryos. So whereas um, the likelihood of that occurring with frozen embryos is much, much less because by the time we freeze those embryos, they've, you know, undergone the rigorous steps along the way and they're much closer to that promised land, so to speak, of ending up in a healthy, normal baby. So Dr. Sapelian, I'm not a betting man, but if I was 25 years old and I wanted to do egg freezing, I would probably say to you, is there an ability for me to sort of take half a dozen eggs and keep them as just eggs and take the other half dozen eggs and use an autonomous or anonymous donor, sperm donor, and then make those into embryos? And now I have both in case I wanted to try just the egg by myself or the embryo. That's an excellent point, and oftentimes uh, we do have patients who do that, um, you know, and typically, you know, 25 years old is, is, it's rare that we see somebody who comes in at 25 to freeze their eggs, let alone, you know, wanting to freeze half eggs and half embryos. However, you know, as a theoretical discussion, 
that typically is a very good, um, you know, good approach, whereas you get the best of both worlds. And, you know, and I have had patients who have succeeded in that. I have had patients who have come in who had previously frozen some eggs and previously frozen some embryos. Um, however, um, you know, uh, if if the eggs didn't work, then they they always have a backup plan where they can fall back on the embryos that were frozen. That's a discussion that we typically routinely have um, with with all the patients. We discuss you know freezing eggs or freezing embryos or freezing both. Um, or, you know, just doing nothing. Also, in some cases, someone may, came, may come in, their ovarian reserve is outstanding, and, and they're in the 90 top percentile. We may just opt to say, well, you know, why don't we reassess in a, in a couple of years and see where you stand, especially if they're not, you know, fully convinced and ready to proceed with the process. So, Dr. Spielian, just to so, sort of summarize quickly, and then I want to ask you one fun bit. Um the omen is really on, for example, someone like myself to make sure that my patients are educated. It's definitely becoming something the public is becoming extremely aware of because they're coming into my practice all the time and asking me about it. And now that I know that there's tests that I can do to sort of gauge the probability of a success, the next thing I would do is simply refer them to, for example, to you so they could have a, a proper consultation and decide if this is a path they're willing to take. Yeah, that that's that would be. Um, I think that it, it's really incumbent on all of us um, as gynecologists. And even though I'm subspecialized, I consider myself a gynecologist. Is to you know uh, make sure, just like we educate our patients on every other aspects, we educate our patients on you know, routine uh, screening and preventative tests for against cancer or vaccination. Well, fertility potential and fertility preservation is also something else we should all screen for and counsel and advise our patients. And, and doing a simple blood test like an anti-Mullerian hormone will also set up a baseline of where we can um, you know, we can assess, uh, you know, where they stand. And then also it will help us, you know, counsel them. Um, yes, indeed, if, you know, it's something that if the patient is, let's say, 32 years old, 33 years old, and they are, um, you know, and they're single, and, you know, they don't foresee that they're going to have a, a child for another five, six, seven years, then, um, you know, then, yes, that, you know, consultation is in order. See, yeah, the fertility doctor, at least hear our perspective would be a very useful and uh, useful step for them to then. And then ultimately, it's the patient's decision. So we both live in Los Angeles in Southern California, and I actually was reading uh, an article about this not too long ago, and I was fascinated. And I was fascinated because the article premised, basically, our grandmas, my grandma, hosted Tupperware parties. Our moms were like Mary Kay party goers. And now, all of a sudden, more and more social parties are popping up 
with egg freezing. Have you seen yes. that as far as marketing and, and, and they really bringing awareness to the patient? This is becoming a real social thing. Yeah, I have definitely have heard about it. Um, I mean, typically, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, who these parties are organized by or if it, they're done for marketing. Um, but by all means, you know, I have heard about it. We, um, as you said, you know, um, it's incumbent on us as healthcare practitioners to really educate our patients. And no matter what the best way of that is, whether it is through, you know, face-to-face, um, you know. Whatever uh, platform. Yeah, whether when we see our patients on a daily basis or on a similar discussion uh, over a podcast, uh, television interviews, which, you know, you totally. and I both are often invited to do. Um, it, it really is incumbent on us to help educate, best educate our patients so they can take that knowledge. And, you know, as as you said, knowledge is power to, you know, to really preserve their health, in this case, preserve their fertility. The other point I wanted to talk to you about, which I thought was fascinating, and really, and that's just because I'm a, I'm a tech freak, and I've never realized the power of fertility technology. And they're actually estimating, and I was mentioning this before you came on the air, that fertility tech is actually going to be a business worth more than $400 billion by 2022. And I came across a Fitbit band, wristband. And I don't know if you've heard of it or if you can tell me more about it, but it was developed in 2016. And apparently it monitors um, different parameters that indicate ovulation. And it is helping hundreds, if not thousands or hundreds of thousands of women actually find or pinpoint the most optimum time for fertility. Is that something you're working with, or, or are you familiar with these gadgets? Yes, there, there are several. Um, you know, there are several apps, applications, or devices that that do measure whether it is basal body temperature or other uh, biochemical markers that indicate. Um, you know, when ovulation is, is um, taking place and so on. Um, now, keep in mind, though, that ultimately, you know, ultimately, um, more than 85% of couples who are trying on their own will conceive just through having, you know, frequent, uh, regular intercourse. Just having right? fun. Yeah, exactly. And that, just, to be just, honest, Dr. Spielman, that's what I tell my patients when they come in and they want to talk preconceptual counseling. They're healthy. They're young. First thing I say is, look, guys, the worst thing you can do is stress yourself out, provoke increases in your cortisol levels. Just have a good time. Don't even check ovulation. Enjoy the beginning of your marriage, for example. And let's revisit this in eight months, a year from now. Um, and that's obviously in a couple that I don't believe has infertility issues and still has the advantage of time. Yes. And that's a very, that's a very good approach. Now, of course, we need to screen that couple, make sure that there isn't anything obvious that may, you know, uh, cause infertility in that patient. Like for example, if the patient has a history of endometriosis, well, the approach may be different. If the patient has a history of, uh, 
having had contracted uh, sexually transmitted disease. A whole slew of issues. Which may have, which may block the fallopian tubes. Well, you know, it may be warranted to do a, a fertility evaluation sooner. If the woman doesn't have regular periods, indicating that you know she has an ovulation problem, again, the workup may be warranted to, to be sooner. Also, let's let's not forget, you know, the the gentleman in this case, the men. Um, if the man has uh, has some sort of a medical history or a surgical history or a lifestyle history, they deserve an evaluation. Yeah, that that uh, you know ma- make them at a higher risk of having male factor infertility. Well, if, in that situation, you know it warrants a more you know uh, an ev- a more rigorous look and an earlier evaluation. However, you know I do agree with you. If we do all this evaluation and it turns out that everything is normal, then for most couples who are younger than 35 years old, we advise them to have regular intercourse. And then if it doesn't happen in, in about a year or so, then for them to come in and get a, evaluate, a further evaluation by a specialist. Um, now, yep. if the couple is, especially the woman's age, is older than 35, then that time interval is shortened to six months because, you know, uh, as a result of uh, diminishing ovarian reserve, we really have to be more aggressive Absolutely. in those cases. Yep, that's how we do it in our office. Guys, this was a lot of information. Dr. Sapilin, you were amazing. Always a wealth of knowledge. And thank you for all these facts and teaching us about egg preservation and what the steps are. If my audience and my patients want to know more about you, where you practice, and how to get in touch with you, can you can you give us a little bit of information? Yes, of course. Yeah, we have uh, we see patients in several locations in Los Angeles, including Westwood um, at Pacific Fertility Center, Los Angeles, as well as in uh, in Glendale. Um, you know, you can find us at pfcla.com or um, myfertilitymd.com. Um, and we'll be more than happy to um, accommodate you and, and uh, take this discussion further. Thank you so much, Dr. Sapelian and Dr. Goslin. This episode has been super informative. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you on our next episode. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Women's Health and Beyond with Dr. David Goslin. If you found this episode informative, be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to ask Dr. Goslin a question, please visit our website at www.davidgoslin.com or connect on all social media platforms at David Goslin. We'll see you next week for another episode.